Welcome to the Hills. All of you watching online, all of you in person at West Forth, South Lake, and North Richland Hills campus. I have three big thank yous to begin today. First, Thursday is Veterans Day. I'm going to ask now at every campus, if you have served in our military or are currently serving, would you mind standing for just a moment? Could we give them a round of applause and thank them for their service? All of you that have served, would you please stand? Thank you. Now, I want to thank another army, and that is our army of prayer warriors in our church. This past week, we finished our 40 days of prayer for our new vision, Ask for Nations and Generations. And I want to especially thank Chris Shelby, who was the primary creator of that prayer guide. Now, I can promise you for the next five years, we're going to continue to have times where we call you to special seasons of prayer. We are asking for nations and generations. But to all of you that participated, I sincerely say thank you. Now, if you're here for the first time, you probably feel like I walked into the middle of a movie. What's going on? So back in September, we revealed our church vision for the next five years. We are asking for nations and generations. We have a website, nationsandgeneration.org, where you can go and you can read about the audacious goals we have as a church. Seven for nations and seven for generations. And what Taylor and I have been doing since then, as we prepare for our harvest offering next week, is we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah, another man who had a great vision for God about building a better future, and we're learning principles from him so that we can build a better future ourselves as we pursue this vision. We've seen from Nehemiah, you build a better future through prayer and faith, through unity, through perseverance and focus and allegiance. We're going to close our study of this book with what I think is one of the most critical virtues you must add to this list, though it's often not seen as important. And that is you build a future through joy. So I've told the story before, but so many of you knew and I haven't heard it. I'm going to tell again. I'm 16. Like every teenager, I want a car, which means I have to get my first job. And my first job was working at a candy counter at a Sears store in South Dallas. I sold a lot of popcorn and chocolate-covered peanuts. My manager was named Charlotte. Charlotte was not a believer. She was a hard woman. She had lived a hard life. But she liked me. And she would often schedule me to work at night and on the weekends when she worked. So at the end of that first year, I have a chance to get a new job making more money loading trucks. And I tell Charlotte I'll be leaving. And she was genuinely sad about that. And she asked, well, now after high school, what are your plans? I told her, well, I'm going to go to college because I want to study to become a minister. And she looked concerned and said, Rick, I just don't see you as a minister. Now, I'm concerned. What have I done that it made her think I couldn't be a minister? I said, Charlotte, why can't you see me as a minister? She said, well, I don't know. It's just, well, you seem like such a happy person. <laughs> and it was my first experience of how many non-Christians view believers as a very dour crowd. It's like the young girl that saw a mule for the very first time and said, I do not know what you are, but you must be a Christian because you look just like my grandpa. 
Can I just be clear? Glumness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Now, goodness is, gentleness is, kindness is, glumness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Building a future with God is not something to be done dutifully. It is something to be done joyfully. And we're going to see that today by looking at a praise party. So you can open your Bibles or your apps to Nehemiah chapter 12, where they dedicate the wall that Nehemiah helped the people rebuild. Now you think, wait, they finished the wall back in chapter 6. Why are they waiting so long to dedicate it? Well, what we saw last time was that before Nehemiah dedicates the wall, he wants the people to rededicate their lives to God. So we saw a whole chapter where they just stand and hear the Word of God. A whole chapter where they confess their sins to God. A whole chapter where they make promises to God and pledge their allegiance to follow God's Word. And after the people have rededicated their lives to God, it's time to dedicate the wall to God. And what Nehemiah planned next must have felt something like a Super Bowl parade. Now, none of us in Dallas or Fort Worth know what that feels like. But you've seen on TV where a city's team will win the world championship. And there's so much joy. People come together and they just erupt in happiness as they celebrate this great thing. So starting now in chapter 12, verse 27, let's look at this praise party. It says, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. And when the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Now that must have been some kind of praise party. And notice that God was the source of their joy. That God had given them great joy. You can have a wall without joy, but you can't have this kind of joy without God. And their joy was as contagious as it was outrageous. It says, look again, verse 43. The sound of happiness in Jerusalem could be heard far away. And by the way, I think that's why Nehemiah had the praise party start on top of the wall. They had a perfect venue for a party. It's called the Temple of God. But he starts it on the wall because he wanted the watching world to see. Their joy wasn't based on what they had built. Their joy was based in who they worshipped. They were building a better future, not because of a new wall, but because of their new found joy in the Lord. And church, we must do the same thing. Now, in the next five years, as we pursue this vision, we're going to have a lot of times to just stop down and celebrate. 
We're going to celebrate new people coming to Christ. We're going to celebrate foster kids finding a safe home. We're going to celebrate marriages that get improved and new leaders that get raised up and all the people that are serving in the local schools and all the Bible translations that we're going to help start. And we're going to have a lot of reasons to stop down and celebrate. But I want us to be very clear about something. We don't celebrate the vision. We celebrate the God of the vision. Okay? Now, what we're going to try to do for the next five years is going to be hard. We're saying that up front. This vision is audacious. And if we pursue it dutifully, we will get exhausted. But if we pursue it joyfully, we will stay exhilarated even when it gets hard. Because the future we can anticipate depends on who or what we celebrate. And that's true for you as an individual. The future you can anticipate depends on who or what you celebrate. And so as we ask for nations and generations, Hills Church, we intend to celebrate God. And let me show you from this chapter three things that happen when God is celebrated. The first thing is that holiness is a joy. Now, did you notice that before the party started, the priest purified the people? See, Jerusalem had been basically an abandoned dump. And now they're calling people to come and move back into the city. And it wasn't just any city. It wasn't just a remodeled city. It was a holy city. It was set apart for God. And the people that live there should be too. When someone comes over to your house for dinner, do you serve them food on dirty plates? Of course not. And in the same way, God wants the vessels that wear his name to be clean. He wants them to be pure. It says in Ephesians 1, 4, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Now, this is why throughout the Bible you find God saying, be holy because I am holy. But here is the great lie of the enemy, that holiness and glumness are synonymous. If you choose to live a holy life, a set-apart life, a life that stays away from the things of the world that pollute, uh, you can have a fine life, but you won't have a fun life. You will have a dour, miserable life if you choose holiness. There was a man named Lord Kenneth Clark. He was a pioneer in British television. He uh, had this series called Civilizations that studied the arts. He was well known around the world. And he lived and died without faith in Jesus. But in his autobiography, he tells an amazing story that one day he went into a church and he had what he described as the most overwhelming, intense experience of joy he had ever known. He couldn't explain it. He said it was a feeling of pure grace. And it caused him to think, could this be God? I have never felt this kind of joy in my life. And then he began to think, if it is God, I must surrender to him. And if I surrender to God, I must turn my back on my lifestyle and the world in which I live. And he chose to walk away from the greatest feeling of joy he had ever known for a cheaper joy. 
And that's the lie the enemy tries to seduce you and I into thinking. That we're giving up joy if we are holy for God. And you might say, Pastor, I know a lot of Christians and they're not very joyful. I'm going to argue it's not because of their holiness. It's because of their double-mindedness. It's because they put on the Jesus jersey one day and they take it off the next day. They're always taking off their jersey depending on where they are. You want part-time joy? Be a part-time Christian. But I'm arguing that when you live set apart for God, your holiness doesn't rob joy. It brings joy. It gives you the best possible life. So when I was a boy, my favorite football player was this guy, Roger Staubach. He was the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. Now, at the time, the two most popular players in the NFL were Roger Staubach and the quarterback of the Jets, Joe Namath, who was known for his rather loose lifestyle. Now, Roger is being interviewed on national television by a woman named Phyllis George, who was a pioneer as a female sports broadcaster. They're having a dull, mundane interview with the same old, same old questions. When out of the blue, Phyllis blindsided Roger like no defensive tackle ever had. And she said, Roger, how do you feel when you see Joe Namath, who is so sexually active and has a different woman on his arm every day? And Roger, in front of millions of people, kept his cool like it was a famous fourth quarter comeback. And he said, Phyllis, I am just as sexually active as Joe. It's just that all of mine is with one woman. Hallelujah, now you know why the Cowboys are God's favorite team. It is not a burden to be holy. It is a blessing. It is a joy to be filled with God's Holy Spirit. And it is a reason to celebrate when you know you are on a journey to an audience with the King of Kings. Look at with me 1 John 3. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but He has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as He is pure. If you are pumped and you are excited about the thought that someday you are going to stand before the King of Kings, and that God's Holy Spirit is transforming you daily into His image. If that gets you excited, then staying pure is not a burden. It is your highest joy. As we build a future for God, it should excite us that God is building us for a future with Him. And that's something we have to celebrate when we congregate. So, the second thing we learn from Nehemiah 12 is that when God is celebrated... Worship is a joy. Yeah, I've read the book of Nehemiah many times, and I hadn't noticed till this time all the little nuggets in there where Nehemiah is trying not just to build a wall, but to rebuild a culture of worship. The first thing he did in chapter 7 after the wall was built was he appointed musicians to live in the city to worship God. It says in chapter 11, he appointed a man named Mataniah to lead in thanksgiving. Also in that chapter, he set up Uzi as the high priest because he was a descendant of Asaph, who was a family that sang to God. And then in chapter 12, remember, how did he start the party? He called all the priests in and he said, bring your instruments so that we can celebrate joyfully 
with songs of thanksgiving. Nehemiah isn't just building a wall. He is rebuilding the culture of celebration that that city had lost. He didn't think worship was something to be endured. He thought worship was something to be enjoyed. Now, let's be clear. There are several worship languages in the Bible. One of them is lament. Many of the songs are songs confessing our sadness before the Lord. Last summer, we studied the book of Habakkuk, and we had a time where we lamented the things we've lost in the last couple of years, and that is appropriate. But be clear, lament should always be the church's second language. The church's most fluent worship language should be celebration because the focus of worship isn't where I'm at. The focus is always who God is. And who God is doesn't change no matter where I'm at. So you have Psalms like 100, shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him singing with joy. Sometimes we sing, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving. I will enter his courts with praise. We should be joyful for the same reason we should be holy. Because God is. Do you realize God is the most joyful being in the cosmos? God is completely full of joy. And that's why when the Spirit of God enters your life, one of the fruits that show up is joy. Romans 14 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is what I've learned. When I meet a Christian or I see a church and there's no joy, the first question, what's wrong? What happened? Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes to some churches that have been steeped in legalism. And his first question, what happened to all your joy? As soon as I saw the joy is gone, I know something's wrong. Joy should be the primary language of the people of God. So several years ago, my wife and I, along with Morton and Susie Jeffrey, went to uh, the 50th anniversary celebration of African Christian College. It's a school in Swaziland our church helped start over 50 years ago. And for several days, man, we just enjoyed the spirit of celebration in the worship of the people from all these different African nations. And then we got to Sunday and the big day of dedication. And the spirit completely changed. In fact, let me show you a picture. This is the teenagers. This is during worship. Do they look excited? And I don't mean this in any way to be ugly, because there's all kinds of wonderful praise music, but we were singing that day 70-year-old Southern gospel songs that we had not sung all week. And I asked someone, why are we singing these songs? And the answer, these are the songs the missionaries taught us to sing on Sunday. I said, sing one of your songs. So this was the next song, and I took some video. Watch this with me. See if you know the
saying and they said they're saying even when life is hard I find my joy in the Lord amen, amen. amen. let me be clear worship is not something you have to do worship is something you get to do you get no matter where you are and what you're going through to take time with other believers and celebrate the goodness of God you get to do that every week. And here's what I hope. That every week people come into our buildings at all three of our campuses who don't know God. And if they sit close to you, I hope they see by the joy with which you worship that you think God is real and God is good. And so as we pursue our vision, church, let's be clear. We're going to be intentional about celebrating the God of our vision. It's not our duty to praise Him. It is our delight. Worship is a privilege. Huh, but so is giving. Look at the last verse of 43 again. Many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day, for God had given the people cause for great joy. And so just as holiness and worship are a joy, when you celebrate God, sacrifice is a joy. See, Nehemiah knew what it was going to take to keep the party going. Building a future is no fun when there are no funds. And so now, next verse, notice what they do. It says, on that day, the day of the party, the day when everybody's having such a good time, on that day, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the offerings, the first, not the last part, the first part of the harvest and the tithes. They were responsible to collect from the fields outside the towns the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. Now watch. For all the people of Judah took joy in the priests and Levites and their work. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification as commanded by David and his son Solomon and so did the singers and the gatekeepers. The custom of having choir directors to lead the choirs and hymns and praise and thanksgiving to God began long ago in the days of David and Asaph. So now, in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel brought a daily supply of food for the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Levites. You see what they're saying? They're saying, we don't want the party to stop. What these priests are doing purifying us, leading us in worship, bringing joy to our lives. We want to keep us going. And so we're going to make sure we are faithful, our sacrifices and our tithes so that this culture of worship can continue. It wasn't a burden for them to do this. It was a blessing. And this shouldn't surprise us because all through the Bible, generosity and joy go together. Jesus said it's more blessed. It's, it's more happy to give than it is to receive. So for example, the apostle Paul is collecting money for poor saints in Jerusalem. He writes about the Macedonian Christians in 2 Corinthians 8. They're being tested by many troubles and they're very poor, but they're also filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. A little later in that book, Paul writes, God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because God is one. 
Because God is a cheerful giver. And he loves it when his kids look like the father. In fact, I'm going to argue. It's only what you give with joy that counts in heaven. Jesus said that when you sacrifice for the kingdom of God, your bank account in heaven is growing. But I'm going to argue only what you gave with joy goes into the bank account in heaven. To build a better future, you got to find joy in what you're sacrificing to build. I thought of that a few weeks ago. My wife and I had the privilege to go to San Diego and meet with Gina and Carlos Asazaga. They're church planters that we are supporting. Uh, you got a, a picture here of them with their son, Isaac. Now, they didn't grow up in faith. They didn't come to faith until they were young adults. One of the first times they ever sat in a church. They saw a plate being passed, and they saw people putting money in it. I guess that's what you do. So he reached into his wallet. All he had was a 20, so he put it in the plate, and the guy was starting to take the plate away. And he grabbed it back and said, wait a second, I haven't made change. And he got some change. And he'll tell you, I didn't know you could give with joy until I really got to know the Lord. Well, now they know. It's hard to plant a church, period. But especially one year in when a pandemic shuts you down. It's hard to raise a special needs child who will be with him all his life. But don't feel sorry for Gina and Carlos because they are joyful people. They think it is a blessing to be called to serve in the kingdom of God. I'll say it again. To build a better future, you've got to find joy in what you're building. You've got to believe that the investment is so worth it, it makes you happy to sacrifice, to pursue it. And Jesus says, that's what people who understand the kingdom get. That yes, they sacrifice, but it's not a burden. He compared the kingdom this way in Matthew 13. He said, it's like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Let's be clear. Jesus never said, follow me. It's going to be lousy. You're not going to have any fun, and you're just going to have to endure it. But if you hang hanging long enough and you die, you get to go to heaven. No, what Jesus said is the best possible life and the greatest possible joy you will ever know is when you finally figure out how valuable it is to be in the kingdom of God. That's Satan's greatest concern is that you ever figure out how much the kingdom is worth it. Because once you figure out how much the kingdom is worth, you will stop selling out for all the trivialities that are robbing you of real joy. And so that's the question for us. Do we believe in the future of the kingdom of God more than anything else we could give our lives to try to build? And does our joy back up what we say we believe. We'll have a chance to find out next week. We'll have a chance to find out if how much we believe in the kingdom of God. We need $2.6 million to fund church planners and Bible translations and missionaries and people who are giving their lives to grow the kingdom of God in places in the world where it hasn't gone yet. Is that worth building? Does it give us joy? 
to fund that. I think about Mark and Jill Brazel. They're retired. He's had a career as a professional counselor. They're planning to move out of state where their grown kids and grandkids live. And then they, they saw this vision. And they particularly knew they could play a role in helping to impact the next generation of marriages. And they looked at each other and they said, we can't leave now. We need to stay and help this church ask for nations and generations. Is it a sacrifice? Absolutely. Is it a burden? Absolutely not. They're full of joy. See, here's the thing. The joy of the Lord is our witness to nations and generations. Again, why did Nehemiah start the party on the wall? He had the greatest worship venue in the world right there in the temple. But he wanted their celebration to be a proclamation. Notice it doesn't say from far away you could hear the music. It says from far away you could hear the joy. Outrageous joy is contagious joy. Maybe that's why in Acts 16, Paul gets arrested, beaten put in a dungeon, and in the middle of the night, he's singing praise songs to God. Is it a shock before the day is over? He is baptizing a jailer and his family. The world wants to know, where does that kind of joy come from? And so as we seek nations and generations these next five years, church, let's remember to rejoice in the Lord. You think the next five years are going to be easy? You think the world's going to suddenly become a happier place? But we don't find our joy there. We find our joy in the Lord. We celebrate the God of the vision. And we can anticipate other people are going to overhear our joy. They already are. We're already getting calls from churches across the nation wanting to know how they can help us with the vision. I got an email a couple of weeks ago from a woman. And she will admit that the pandemic was hard on her, but God did a work in her life. And last summer, she kind of had a spiritual revival. And she said to the Lord, how can I serve? How can I offer myself to you? And she listened to our vision. She heard about how we want to help asylum seekers, about this organization called DASH. She called them. She's already gotten trained. And she said, I've already got a young mother from another nation that had to flee for safety with her baby. And I'm going to get to advocate and help them adjust to this new run. She was so joyful. Here's my prayer for us. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And can I tell you, church, I'm overflowing with hope. I think these next five years might be the most fun I will ever have had in ministry. We're going to ask for nations and generations. And we're not going to do it dutifully. We're going to do it joyfully. And I promise you, in five years, we are going to have one awesome praise party. So...
Let's pray about it. Father, thank you. Thank you for being a God of joy. Thank you for being a God that loves to give. Thank you for being a God that gives us your own spirit so we can be like you. Thank you for giving us the privilege of building something with our lives that's going to be eternal. Thank you, God, that no matter where we are or what we're going through, we can be a people of outrageous joy. And I pray, God, you will help us to live that way. I pray that we can live in such a way that people will have to ask, what's the secret? Where do you find this kind of joy? And we can say, let me tell you about Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.